Episode 70, Dr. David Mayer, CEO of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. It was horrifying to all of us. I'd never been involved in a mistake, a medical error that had harmed a patient. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, you can go to markraven.com slash mistake70. Please follow, rate, and review. If you like this episode, it's a very important, special message in today's episode. Please share it with a colleague. Share it on LinkedIn. That would really help spread the show. We're joined today by Dr. David Mayer. He is... Uh, the chief executive officer for an organization, a nonprofit called the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. He's also the executive director for the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, MedStar, of course, being a health system. Um, So, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Good, Mark. Uh, How are you today? It's great to be here. It's great to be here. We're going to hear your story, and then we'll, we'll talk about the work you're involved in, and, and we'll call this a teaser for those who are watching on, on video. Um, or I'll say it out loud for those who are listening. We'll find out later what your hat means, why it says zero in big, bold letters. Glad to share. Yeah. So first off, um, in the category of sharing, if you wouldn't mind, um, Dave, if you could share your story, what do you consider to be your favorite mistake? Well, I don't know if it's my favorite, Mark, but it's one that I think changed my life dramatically and had an impact on the work I've done for the last 20 plus years. Um, And it it really, um, you know, involved patient care. So as again, as a physician and anesthesiologist in the operating room, I remember being a senior resident and bringing a patient into the operating room for what was to be a right-sided inguinal hernia. You know, I did my thing. I put my monitors on the patient. I made sure the patient was comfortable on the operating room table. And once we were set to go, I gave my anesthetic drugs. The patient went off to sleep. And as soon as I finished my induction and said, okay, patient's stable, the surgical team immediately went into action, you know, prepping, draping, getting the room moving, because as we know, um, speed is of the essence. The more cases you could do in an operating room on a daily basis, the more profitable a hospital is. So we move very quickly into the procedure. And um, we get to the time when the surgical resident, the senior surgical resident, was getting ready to make the incision. I was Again, in my world, doing my things, charting my vitals, everybody else was in their sort of little silos. The surgical attending had been detained at the scrub sink by another surgeon on a question of a different patient that they were discussing. And about two minutes after the incision was made, the surgical attending walks in the room, walks up to the scrub, walks up to the operating table, and looks down and says, I thought this was a right-sided inguinal hernia repair. The surgical resident 
unbeknownst to me, because I wasn't paying attention, made the incision on the left side. And had gotten about two minutes into the procedure before realizing the mistake was made. Um, it was horrifying to all of us. I'd never been involved in a, a mistake, a medical error that had harmed a patient. Um, the surgeon, surprisingly, was very calm. The resident was shook. It, the resident had to go sit on the chair in the corner. The impact of making that mistake really impacted them. So the uh, surgical attending and the intern who was scrubbed in on the case proceeded to close the wound on the left side, go to the right side, fix the hernia on the right side. And now at the end of the case, the patient had two surgical dressings, one on the left and one on the right. I woke the patient up under, you know, from my general anesthetic, the patient was very drowsy, but I took the patient to recovery room and I dreaded having to go back there in an hour to discharge the patient. It was always the anesthesiologist. Um, you know, it was our job to discharge the patient once we felt they were stable after the anesthetic. An hour goes by and I get called to the recovery room. And as I'm heading to the recovery room and to the bed where my patient's located, I notice the patient's got a smile on his face. And that's not making sense. So I get to the side of the bed, and before I could say anything, the patient goes, today's my lucky day. And now I'm totally like deer in the headlight look. I'm just really confused. But as a good resident, I don't say anything. I'm just listening. And the patient says, yes, today's my lucky day. My surgeon discovered under anesthesia, I had two hernias and was able to fix both of them under one anesthetic, meaning I only missed one day of work. Today's my lucky day. And I, I didn't know what to say. I was totally shocked. Um, and I paused. It seemed like an eternity. It was probably about five, 10 seconds. And I looked at him and I said, yes, today's your lucky day. And I signed that patient out. Um, I still remember that case 35 years later. I remember that man's face. He was in about five foot 11, they had a Tom Selleck looking mustache. And um, it, it just really, you know, impacted my career. I hadn't heard about medical errors. We had gone through, um, I'd gone through four years of medical school, learning all the science, learning a lot of clinical. I spent almost three years in anesthesia, learning all the different anesthetic agents and techniques. No, no, no one ever talked about what happens when we make an error? What happens when we harm a patient? I never had a lecture like that. I also never had a discussion about what do we do and how do we respond to patients when error occurs? And so the, the term, the hidden curriculum, sort of goes into play where you just follow the leads of what others do. And, and the role model that day for me, if you want to use the term role model, was, you know, Deny and defend. Was lie about it, try to get away with it, don't share this, and uh, keep it within our little world. Um, you know, me as a resident, the fear of losing my residency, the fear of mal medical malpractice, what would happen to my license, knowing that I was involved in this case. But I was only thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking about not only what was the right thing to do for the patient and being open and honest. But when we hide errors like that, when we bury them within our own little silos, we don't learn. And so what happened? For years, we continued to have wrong-sided surgery in healthcare. We 
don't have it today because we haven't figured out solutions. We've gotten better with timeouts and checklists and marking the sites, but that only started coming because people started talking about their errors. And so that's why um, a lot of my career has really been focused on trying to understand safety, trying to understand why we make errors to err as human, as the Institute of Medicine report said. But how do we more importantly put systems and processes in place that trap those errors before they occur? And I like to use the analogy that pilots in a research study make about one error every hour or two. They either repeat something wrong, they think they heard something differently, um, little things like that, but they have so many processes and systems in place that these errors are trapped before they move forward and potentially lead to mishap in the cockpit. And we're not there when it comes to safety within the healthcare environment. So that's the mistake that I've lived with for 35 years, but it has, I think, shaped my career in, in many ways. Mm. And, you know, and I, I appreciate you um, Dave, uh, you know, for being willing to tell that story. Um, you know, I think, and there's a lot of follow-up questions um, that I've got jotted down here. I think there's, there's so much we can unpack from this specific mistake. Um, and, you know, some might say, well, you know, it was a mistake to not speak up, or I've heard people sometimes get really judgmental saying, well, that, that nurse should have spoken up, or that pharmacy tech should have spoken up. You have an obligation, but you've already pointed to Things like you know hierarchy and um, what sometimes described as a culture of fear. I, I wouldn't fault you um, for for not correcting the surgeon or the attending or, or, or correcting the patient. I, I would frame it as you know you, you being put in a bad position. So how do we avoid doing that in the future? I know that's that's been a big part of your mission. Can can you talk a little bit about you know trying to change some of that culture? the education, the way people are behaving. Yeah, I, I have. And it's why I've been so involved in, in the CANDOR program. CANDOR is Communication and Optimal Resolution. Uh, I was fortunate enough. And look, that story, it took me 19 years to share that story. And the first time I shared it was in 2004 in front of a group of medical students who were going through a patient safety lecture within uh, our curriculum. I was the associate dean for the medical school at the University of Illinois, and it put a patient safety quality care curriculum, four-year longitudinal curriculum, into the students' learnings uh, while they were with us. And I shared that story for the first time after 19 years because I had read the book Wall of Silence by Rosemary Gibson the year before. And I read this book in a weekend. It's a great book. It talks about what patients and families want after they've been harmed from preventable medical errors. It's not about root cause or event reviews. It just says, what did that family want or what did the patient want from their hospital, from their physician? And there were clearly four things that every, um, all 75 families echoed. First, they wanted the truth. They wanted their questions answered. They didn't want to have to run to a lawyer to try to get information that they felt they was deserved when care went in a direction that nobody had anticipated. So honesty, second thing they wanted was an apology when appropriate. If that hospital or that care team had not lived up to the care standards and that harm was preventable, then they wanted some empathy and an apology. 
Third, they wanted resolution. There's a lot of times issues that need to be dealt with after the fact. Sometimes that's financial resolutions, as we see in courts of law for care plans and other things. Many times we found at the University of Illinois, and I think in 69 of 75 cases that we used the seven pillars model, just the apology and being open and honest and answering questions was enough. It wasn't like, okay, now we want $100,000 just to make us feel better. No, those families moved on. Did they say they never wanted to see us again? Did they share that they never wanted to see our hospital again? Yes. But at least that brought closure to them. And finally, the fourth thing was, what are you going to do to improve your hospital so this doesn't happen to somebody else? And that were the four things. And I learned that from Rosemary's book. And it really, again, was something I was looking for in my soul searching of what I should have done. And so that became an impetus for me and others at the University of Illinois when we brought Rosemary in to start our Seven Pillars program, which was one of the programs that eventually led to the candor communication optimal resolution. Mm-hmm. So you, you've touched on, I mean, it sounds like one of the big systemic changes uh, is that the education system for physicians has changed. Um, maybe, I mean, how consistent is that education about um, harm and, and patient safety and medical education today? It's gotten better. It still has a lot of work to do. Um, Look, we always, when I was the associate dean, we always had a a saying that assessment drives the curriculum. And so students would always say, is this on the national board's exam? Is this on the final exam? And if safety and quality are not embedded within those, you know, really high stakes exams, then they're not going to study it. They're not going to pay attention to it. They're going to think it's just something that isn't important. It's the anatomy, the biochemistry, the, you know, congestive heart failure algorithms that they're going to get tested on. So I think we still have a long way to go. I will say that the ACGME on the residency side has been pushing this and training within residency programs has become a lot better, but we still haven't taken it down really into, you know, medical school and nursing schools the way we should. Yeah. How did the students react when you told that story? And, and did they react the way you expected? What, what, what did you predict? How did they react? Um, they were somewhat shocked. I mean, it was very quiet in the room, you know, sort of opening up and sharing that. But remember, um, you know, students, especially in the first couple of years, are very clinically naive. They haven't been on the floors of, you know, the hospitals. They haven't seen things that go on. And so um, we sort of, as students, they start off with such a great mindset and they start off with wanting to always do the right thing. And then the clinical environments in the world that they get into, like me, show that, no, that's not the way we handle these things here. We turn it over to our legal counsel and they put up roadblocks. They try to not share the medical record with the family. And it becomes a legal battle. Um, and, and that's just wrong. And we found out through the seven pillars and candor work that not only is open and honest approaches to preventable medical harm the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do because you're able to come to resolution quicker. You're able to close the events and allow the family to move on, to allow the care team to move on. Who, 
what doctor or nurse wants to go through sometimes five, six, seven depositions over a few years before the case finally gets to court. And then everybody's still arguing about right and wrong. I remember Rick Boothman had a great comment. Rick's out of Michigan um, and did a lot of great work in this area. And he was a trial lawyer and being on the plaintiff side as well as on the defense side for medical malpractice cases. And he said in the 20 years he would be in the courtroom, not once did anybody ask, what did we learn from this? It was all about who would win and what dollars were being saved or having to be dispensed in resolution. There was no learning involved in our medical legal system. And that's why we make the same errors over and over again, because it, you can't learn unless you're transparent. Yeah, yeah. And I want to come back to, um, in a little bit, a question of uh, how common, um, you know, errors and harm and death could be. But first, you know, when you talk about... Um, Students, you know, I, I come at this as a non-clinician who um, has been fortunate to work with healthcare organizations. Um, I had a chance years ago in San Antonio. There's a, a great program there um, where it's a, kind of a bridge from high school into college, and you've got students. Um, it's called Alamo Academies, and they. Um, I had a chance to come in and teach, uh, lead a session about healthcare improvement. So you have kids in the class who have also all wide range of aspirations. You have some um, who want to be pediatric neurosurgeons, and then you have some that want to be, um, you know, a laboratorian or they want to be a nurse or any you know, whatever points in the health system. Um, and uh, you know, I wanted to bring up the idea of um, medical error and preventable harm. And I, and I shared an example, um, you know, it was in the news about a wrong side surgery, sort of similar to what I think you were talking about. And their jaws dropped. And, and I could see from the looks on their faces, like, you know, they were thinking, well, how could this happen? So I tried to ask them, how do you think this could happen? And, and it was amazing how intuitive the kids were. The first hands that were raised, they said things like, well, I bet there was some sort of miscommunication or, you know, maybe somebody got distracted. And um, so I was going to, you know, kind of turn that question back to you. Um, you know, how do these sorts of mistakes happen in an operating room in particular? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I love the story of the students. I remember when I would start the curriculum, literally the first day, eight o'clock in the morning after new student week and all the, the parties and they were there. And before the first biochemistry lecture I did in introduction to medical school lecture. And I would ask the students, what were they most afraid of? You know, you're in here now. You, you did all the work. You got the test scores. You went through the interviews. Now you are in medical school. What are you most afraid of? Five years straight, Mark, the two things that they always brought up was fear of failure. I'm in here now and I don't want to fail. I don't want to have to go back and tell mom, dad, my friends, I couldn't cut it. And the fear of hurting somebody. They had, they had seen and heard stories. And, and so uh, they are very intuitive. But yet errors occur because um, you know, we're so busy. Say the operating room situation. You know, like I mentioned, there's the pressure to turn rooms over quickly, to move quickly. We're doing many lateral type cases. In one room, we may do five hernias in a row or five knee arthroscopies in a row. The first one might be a left, the next two might be a right, then a left, then a right. 
And the schedule sometimes makes a mistake and posts it wrong. The consent sometimes has the wrong information. And so that's why sometimes patients get frustrated now when we continue to ask them five, six times. Now, we are operating on your left knee. Is that correct? And the patients go, why do you keep asking me that? Because we've learned all it takes is one person to catch something that could prevent an error from happening. So I think it's it's the pressures of still volume of cases we do versus quality of cases we do that are reimbursed today. Now, the last thing I'll add about the students is one of the things I'm probably most proud of is 16 years ago, we started, I founded what was called the Telluride Patient Safety Summer Camps for students and residents. And surprisingly, who was the one that was funding this scholarship-wise? It was medical malpractice companies. It was the doctor's company out of California. It was Copic out of Denver. They wanted the next generation of physicians, nurses, and healthcare leaders to understand not only the importance of safe, high-quality care, but we spent four and a half days with these students in Colorado. We would have every year about 200 students go through. We've got an alumni now, Mark, of almost 1,400 students and residents that have gone through our our one-week workshops over the last 16 years. There's a big segment of it in being open and honest after preventable harm. And I share that story of mine with the wrong-sided surgery, how I did it wrong. And then we have some patients and families where it's been done right. And they're part of our faculty in these Telluride summer camps for the students. And they love learning from the family members uh, as faculty. Yeah. And when you talk about, um, you know, those, those multiple checks and, you know, there are some other practices that seem to have become more common, um, things that I would call mistake-proofing of um, literally signing where the incision is going to play, take place uh, with a Sharpie, um, the, the surgeon signing their name as, as part of um, something that can remain a double check. Because once the patient's been put under anesthesia, of course, you can no longer ask them, why are you here? Like as a patient, frankly, I would say, well, it's... You, 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 there's a barcode, there's a, a, a thing around my wrist, you're supposed to be able to track <laughs> why I'm here, I, you, know, um, it send, you know, and not rely so much on the asking. But, um, you know, there are some of the, those other approaches that are meant to take away what, what seem like systematic causes of error. It's, it's not a matter of um, bad people, it's, it's, it's bad systems, it seems. It's exactly right. I mean, no one goes to work to harm a patient. We all go to to heal a patient, and we're devastated when we're involved in an error that has reached the patient and potentially caused harm. So, yes, I mean, there are good people. We just haven't given them the systems, the processes, the resources, the tools, and it's sometimes the training, work together effectively a team, learning how to communicate better, giving them those different types of tools that help communication processes so we don't have breakdowns between you know, five different people from social work to pulmonary consultants to internal medicine. You know, we have so many people taking care of a patient today. And if they're not communicating effectively, that's where breakdowns occur. And you brought up the the point earlier, if people are rushed, if they're under time pressure, if things have fallen behind due to factors out of their control, um, we we don't want people to... um, 
be pressured into um, in, you know, cutting corners might be too harsh, but but being rushed and and, and yeah. perhaps um, being more prone to mistakes. I remember being at an airport in Denver, waiting to get on a plane, and they said the plane was going to be delayed forty five minutes. You know, and you get the oh, everybody's. But the reason the plane was being delayed was because one of the windshield wipers on the window needed to be replaced, and they made sure that they did that, even if it meant a 45 minute delay and, you know, getting people a little disappointed. But when I heard why it was delayed, I was giving thumbs up and saying, thank you. I'm not sure if we do that in healthcare all the time. If some small little thing that we figured, ah, don't worry, we probably won't need it anyways. Let's just get the patient in the room. I've seen that happen too many times. And that's a different mindset. Then maybe aviation has come to have. Well, and I mean, you know, when in aviation, the pilot's safety is more directly aligned to the passengers. That might be a difference as well. It it might, but again, it's, I remember a pilot telling me that one time on a panel and and, we finished the panel, we were sharing thoughts. This is about 15 years ago. And he told me, you know why healthcare will never get this? It's because the pilot is the first at the scene of an accident. And that it kind of kicked me in the gut a little bit. And I was saying to myself, is that really, you know, is that really true? The, the people I've worked with, um, you know, they want to do the right thing. They want to make sure the patient is safe and, and treated as, as best they can. It's just that the things around them sometimes limit them from doing the job that they came to work to do that day. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. So it might, might be a, you know kind of an unfair assumption um, that 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 I made there. But um, so if that was uh, a mistake, forgive me. No, you're uh, you're for that. You're not the <laughs> only one. I hear that a lot, and right. uh, there may be some truth to it. But like I said, uh, people I've worked with, um, you know, they're not cutting corners. Um, it's just we need better systems and processes. Sure, but you know the the. Level- I think yeah. might be some of the issue. And so I, anyway, I, I asked the question directly. I didn't use the crutch of like, well, some people would say. I, I, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, that's what I'm saying about the windshield wiper. I'm not sure a lot of us would say, oh, let's just wait the 45 minutes. We'd say, let's, what's the chance of anything happening? We never use that piece of equipment anyways. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Um, versus the mindset of aviation. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like there there are two different types of mistakes we've been talking about. There's the medical mistake, and then there's what could be framed of, you know, the mistake of not being honest with the patient. Um, You know, one other question about the culture, you know, it it seems unfair to just lecture people. You must speak up. Um, You know, what what, what is being done? What, What do you think is the best practice? What do you like to see happen? within um, a health system? Um, are, are there ways that people in more senior positions can remove some of the fear or break down some of the hierarchy that might prevent people from speaking up when they would want to? Yeah, it, it does start at the highest levels. You've got to have a leadership, including a CEO and a board that support that. One of my favorite stories is a good friend of both of ours, Paul O'Neill. He used to say at Alcoa, I'm not upset if something goes wrong 
because things happen and we've got to learn to fix them. What I would be upset about is if I don't get it reported to me immediately. If I hear about it a day or two later, that's when I'll be upset. I think the CEOs have to walk that walk also in hospitals. You've got to say, look, I've got your back. And that's what I used to say when I was the vice president of quality and safety at MedStar to people. I said, I've got your back. If there's something that happened, you could come to me and share it with me and I've got you protected because we need to learn. We need to engage the patient or the family member in a conversation. And, um, and it's really critical. And when you look at great places across the country, be it Cincinnati Children's or Virginia Mason, um, you know, I could go on Mayo. I mean, they've got that culture that it starts there. And it's the same thing with our CEO, Ken Samet at MedStar. That was, the, you know, Ken was the real deal. And that's why I think we've done some tremendous work at MedStar around quality and safety. And, and Ken was involved in some of the disclosures we would have with family members, even though he wasn't part of the care team. He want to be there for those communications. That's how seriously he took it. It seems like one of the high level lessons um, culturally is that blame and punishment gets in the way of learning, which then hampers our progress toward reducing medical errors. And there's something like the conundrum that the blame, the blame and punishment to some people might seem necessary or, or the right thing to do, but it seems counterproductive. It is, um, but in many ways, I think hospital find finds it's the easy way out. So if you could blame a nurse for something that any nurse might have made or a physician for a mistake any physician might have made in the same situation, boom, you solve the problem in your mind, you suspend the nurse or dismiss the physician, and you solve the problem. It's easy, let's go on. And they think the public's okay, the family would be okay with that doesn't work. It doesn't work the way it should. And there's been numerous examples of that happening. And then the culture of that hospital being destroyed. Look, there's, there's cases where people have knowingly and recklessly violated safe policies for their own benefit, caregivers that have done that. Those people need to ha- be held accountable because in a just culture, you have to look at the safety science when something goes wrong and understand what happened, what was the problem, not who was the problem, but the opposite side says you also need accountability. And when somebody is reckless and knowingly went out of their way to do something that put a patient at risk, we need to hold them accountable and need to act on those people. Yeah. So there's a difference between a mistake and an intentional act, for sure. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a whole science around this, and some things require coaching. Some things require getting the team together and figuring out what happened and putting new processes or systems in place that would prevent it from happening again. But once you cross that line into something being very well-intentioned, and that's where I think you were talking about the difference in making an error, which 99.9% of the time is just good people trying to do the right thing, but something going wrong with the system process breakdown. That first error is completely unintentional. But the second error of lying to patients or hiding those mistakes, that is completely 
intentional. That is very well resourced and very well thought out. You line up your legal consoles and you use the deny and defend approach and say, we're going to defend this, even though the care is indefensible. We'll figure out a way to beat this in court. And that's that's wrong because that harm could be equally as bad, if not sometimes worse, than that first physical unintentional harm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, um, you know, before we wrap up, I want to talk about um, your hat, <clears throat> your hat that says zero in, in big, bold letters. And, you know, I was about to say, let, let's talk numbers, but I'm like, that's not the right way to frame it because each incident of harm or death is, is somebody's life. So I don't mean to um, just call it the numbers, but when we talk about the preponderance of how many patients are harmed or killed by preventable medical mistakes or medical error, it's a non-zero number. How, how big roughly is that number? How big of a gap is there between today's reality and a goal of zero harm? You know, it's a number that's been debated. You go back to the Institute of Medicine and they said as high as 98,000 patients. Then there was work done by David Clawson and others using the global trigger tool that said the errors and the preventable harm events might be 10 times higher than um, we originally thought. You get John James's paper and research that said it could be as high as 440,000. But the most recent was uh, the Macquarie study in the British Medical Journal that showed 251,000 patients uh, die from preventable medical issues. And that made it the third leading cause of death in this country on an annual basis. Clearly, the pandemic has hit over 400,000 just yesterday. But on an annual basis over the last 10, 15 years, you know, preventable medical harm has been the third leading cause of death in this country. We always say the number is 100,000 if the number is a million. As long as it's greater than zero, it's too many. And no one in aviation would set a goal that said, hey, we'll be really happy if we only have two plane crashes this year. No, they strive for zero. And that's my hat at the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. We are committed to zero preventable deaths by 2030. And we want people, the urgency, we want to really raise the stakes on on this um, statement to the point where um, I've been talking for the last three to about three months now, why not create a patient safety moonshot? President Kennedy did it in the early 60s, 1960, when he said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the year, by the end of this decade, by 1970. We've also said, as the new president, Biden, was sworn in today, that he was put in charge of the patient or of the cancer moonshot, that before President Obama left office, he said, we are going to cure cancer in 10 years. And he claimed that that would be the cancer moonshot. Why not a patient safety moonshot? Why not just say enough's enough? We are going to do whatever it takes, be it forming a national patient safety authority by increasing transparency, by realigning incentives. But we are going to do whatever it takes to drive and get to zero preventable harm by the end of this decade. And I'd love to see the new administration, as well as others, embrace that concept. We don't hit zero, 
I guarantee we'll still be so much better. We'll be closer to aviation where the mishaps are so rare today that they go years without significant harm happening. So let's strive for that because as we say at the patient safety movement, one is just still too many. And you mentioned Paul O'Neill earlier. That was certainly his view when he was CEO at Alcoa. The goal was zero employee harm. Um, you know, he would say, as, as you said, zero is really the only defensible um, goal. Um, when we talk about the gap, whatever the numbers are today, that non-zero number, you talk about transparency or this tendency to lie or cover things up. To to me, there's this catch-22 where you have these different studies that are estimates that then extrapolate out more broadly. And then I hear some people in in healthcare try to shoot that down and say, oh, well, those estimates are wrong. And part of me gets a little upset and like, well, the estimates wouldn't be so bad if we actually had transparency. It's it's, it's a frustrating um, who's on first back and forth, it seems. It is. And and Fortunately, you know, is we are getting better. Uh, the technology being applied to the electronic health record using things like automated global triggers that at, in a moment's notice at real time are able to pick things out of an electronic health record that raise an alert about a potential issue or harm event that is just starting to occur, misdiagnosis you know, delayed responses to things. Um, some great work being done by a number of groups out there that I think if we, we use these new technologies and put teams in place that can respond to these issues quickly versus 24 hours later, I think we'll start seeing um, a lot of these things happening. And, and I always said, you know, it's, we may not have all the solutions today, We've taken ventilator-associated pneumonias pretty much down to zero, central line infections through the great Keystone Project work. So we may not know how to get Clostridium difficile infections down to zero today, but if we put our minds to it and we put smart people focused in on it, in a year from now, we may have that solution. So we've got to think very positive. And just because we don't know something today doesn't mean in five years we won't have a solution that makes care safer in that area. And as, as we work towards zero, um, you know, um, you mentioned the hat. Uh, I don't have it handy, but I went and purchased one of those hats. Yes, um, yes you did. The Patient Safety Movement Foundation website. So I want to give a plug for that. Uh, PatientSafetyMovement.org uh, is the website. It's not just a hat store. There's a lot of great information out there. There is. There's a lot of actionable patient safety solutions that are evidence-based tools that have you know, been proven to save lives in hospitals that have implemented them. And yes, and we also have hats for zero if you want to join the mission with us. It's a conversation starter because you can wear that hat. What what is that? Do you think you're a zero? Yeah. Do you think, yeah, is this a a personal identity thing or (laughs) is it it a character trait? (laughs) But um yeah, I mean, there's there's so much work to be done. And um, you mentioned the moonshot, Dave. I'll, I'll post, I, I saw this morning, a video that was released yes. by the Patient Safety Movement Foundation meant to spark thought and some inspiration. Um, so I'll, I'll put that video in uh, the show notes and, and the, the, uh, the page. One, one final question here. We, you know, we've talked a lot about what leaders and physicians and, and health 
care organizations can do. Um, you mentioned now President Biden. Um, I saw him speak when he was then vice president at one of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation annual events. Um, I, I was impressed. He seemed quite knowledgeable um, about um, you know, the patient safety movement, the need for it. Um, you know, so his knowledge and passion was really strong. Um, how, how many, you know, let's say policy solutions are there, or if you had a magic wand, or if you were made the patient safety czar, what could or should be done in the policy realm to really help here? Well, first, Mark, I, I totally agree with you about the new president that we have and the new administration. Um, I've heard President Biden talk many times on healthcare, and, and I've been totally amazed at his understanding, his knowledge. And that's achieved not only from all the work he's done, first as a senator and then as a vice president, but also through his own issues with his first wife and the car crash and then loss of his son, Bo Biden, due to brain tumor. Um, so he gets health care, not only from a legislator, but as a user of the system. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited that we will hopefully have these conversations. But I guess if I had a magic wand, I'd ask for three things right now, besides putting a committee together that would start looking at this patient safety moonshot and try to do like he did with cancer, bring experts together and start defining an agenda and an action plan. But I would hope that would include first the formation of a national patient safety authority an organization similar to the National Transportation Safety Board that exists for transportation and particularly aviation to learn and disseminate learning so all could improve together. I would love to see incentives being much more aligned around quality and safety of care. We still, as I mentioned earlier, reward volume and productivity versus quality and safety and outcomes. And that needs to change if we're going to see you know, see improvements. And then finally, the transparency area, that more hospitals are rewarded for embracing the candor type approach of open and honest communication. They're sharing their outcomes in a more transparent way so patients and families can make informed decisions about where they might want to go get their knee repaired versus where they may, may need to get their diabetes treated. Uh -huh. so, some hospitals are really good at one thing, but not so good in the other. And patients and families need to have that transparency, not only when errors are made, but also about a hospital's current outcomes and things they're doing to improve the work in those areas. Yeah, and, and there are incentives. Um, in my exposure in the health system, there are incentives based on patient experience or patient satisfaction surveys. Yes. That drives a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Those issues, and it seems like what you're saying is a similar focus around um, safety and harm would would be beneficial. With those incentives, we we've moved with the pay for performance and some other things that have been implemented, but it hasn't been enough. We need to really kind of you know catalyze that effort and really make many more outcomes, not only on safety and quality, um, aligned incentively and rewarded for, for the efforts being put into them. Yeah. 
Well, um, Dave, thank you so much for um, taking your time and, and being a guest um, and, and sharing your thoughts. So again, our guest is uh, Dr. David Mayer. Among other things, he is the CEO of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. Um, you can learn a lot more online by going to their website, patientsafetymovement.org. Um, thank you. Thank you again so much for um, sharing not just your story, but talking more broadly about mistakes and what we can do to help reduce that in healthcare. Very, very important discussion. No, thanks, Mark, for having me on. And again, it's so great and sharing our mission and being part of wanting to get to zero preventable harm. So we appreciate all you're doing uh, to make it happen. Well, thank you. So we have fired up. We'll go get to it. Go get back to it. Yes, we will. All right. Thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. David Mayer from the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. Again, you can find links and show notes at markgraven.com slash mistake 70. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Since every podcast asks you to do it, it would be a mistake if I didn't ask you to please follow, rate, and review. But most importantly, thank you. Thank you for listening.